Hello, and welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. I'm your host, Alex Green IV. Today, we welcome Dan Burstein. Dan Burstein is a mediator living with bipolar disorder, working to prevent mental illness discrimination. Through his company, MH Mediate, he has spent over a decade adapting conflict resolution best practices to help organizations respond to mental health disclosures, address challenging workplace behaviors, and promote mental health resources in consistent, empowering ways that reduce the impact of mental illness stigma. Dan also launched the Mental Health Safe Project to provide tools to help people take action when they encounter everyday mental illness discrimination, including instances where it is actually published because people did not realize it was a problem. Dan's new book, Mental Health and Conflicts, a Handbook for Empowerment, was recently published by the American Bar Association this year in 2022. First, congratulations on the book. Although I haven't had the opportunity to read and digest everything in it in detail, I believe that it is a great resource for those who wanna gain a better understanding of mental health, the challenges that those who may suffer or have been diagnosed with with a mental disorder or illness and how conflict resolution practitioners can develop best practices for organizations to effectively deploy mental health resources. Welcome. Yes, thank you very much. I'm excited to talk with you about the book and anything else you'd like to talk about. Okay, so to start off, um, tell me a little bit about your background. I mean, you know, childhood, family life, education, who who is Dan Burstein? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, So who is Dan Burstein? Well, Dan Burstein is complicated. Um, I, I had a somewhat tumultuous childhood with a lot of stress. And, um, you know, I do a lot of work with mental illness and dispute resolution because when I was in college, uh, I had a manic episode and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the start of my junior year. Uh, and that really changed the course of my life. I had always wanted to be an entrepreneur and that's why I was studying business at the time. Um, but then I became exposed to a lot in the world of mental health. And even though I, you know, looking back, had a lot of instability in my childhood, I never really saw myself as someone with a mental health problem until I was hospitalized that year. And uh, in the hospital, I just, it opened my eyes to a whole different world of um, what it means to have a mental health problem, you know, how people can be treated uh, in possibly disempowering ways. And it started me on a path of looking for ways to make sense of my own situation, but also do some good and help others and reduce the stigmas that I felt like had been um, really disempowering me and so many of my friends in the hospital. Um, and so you know, that was when I was 19. And, and since then, I've basically been completely uh, obsessed with finding ways to improve these kinds of situations. And eventually I found my way to the field of mediation And I really was excited when I saw the values that we have of self-determination, honoring someone's choices and impartiality, you know, listening to everyone equally, because as someone with a mental illness and, uh, you know, in a community with people with mental illnesses, we weren't being given choices. There was a lot of paternalism um, and we weren't being treated equally. There was a lot of dismissing our views as, you know, potentially ill and, and that you need someone to help you instead of really being heard. So I uh, became a mediator and I became very involved in the field. And um, 
initially, I thought all I had to do was introduce all the people living with mental health problems to all the mediators and get some cases going, and that would be a great thing. But then I noticed that there were biases in the field, that, that the mediators themselves, just like anybody else, um, didn't realize that they were doing things that were discriminatory to people with mental health problems to such a degree that my first training, um, they said at the training, if someone has a mental illness, um, then you screen them out and don't do a case with them for, you know, when I, when I trained as a mediator and I, I started seeing a lot of these kinds of problems. So I, I started doing a lot of work um, to improve the practices in the field as well. And I became very focused on that and, and, and some capacity building amongst mediators. So they would understand the ways to address uh, party choices and challenging behaviors and all sorts of things and accessibility concerns um, and to do all that without inadvertently making assumptions about someone based on, on a mental health problem or acting in ways that might be discriminatory. So that's the, the nutshell um, Cliff Notes version of how I got from childhood to now um, as a mediator, you know, really working to help people apply our values from conflict resolution in a way that doesn't inadvertently discriminate against people with mental health problems and other disabilities. Okay, um, thank you um, for that. Um, I guess my uh, next question, or maybe this is an outgrowth from what, is this exactly what your company does, MH Mediate? Um, so my company teaches people ways to address challenging conversations and situations that may be related to a mental health issue um, using the best practices from our field of conflict resolution and, and practices that I've evolved and researched and studied um, to make sure that people have fair responses that are not discriminatory related to mental health. So what, what that means is I've worked with all kinds of people, giving them trainings and tools. So if somebody brings up uh, mental health in the workplace, whether they're asking for um, something to be adjusted, like they say, you know, I, I need some time off or um, I need my workplace to, you know, um, be a different setup because of my mental health needs or I need to work with different people. Um, that may be a way it comes up or it may come up because the company has um, resources like an employee assistance plan and they want to refer their employees to the plan or it may come up because there's a challenging behavior, like there's someone who is absent or missing deadlines or um, their quality of work has, has fallen or they're having conflicts with people. All of these are situations where someone might start guessing, gee, I think that person's depressed. Gee, I think we should give that person a resource. And it's actually really inappropriate to ever make those kinds of guesses or ask those kinds of questions because people who are living with mental health problems have the right not to be asked those questions and not to disclose them. And so all of my company's work is on how do you actually follow the, the real principles of treating everyone the same um, and, and giving everyone choices instead of telling them what you think they need um, and, and do that in, in how you respond to these mental health situations. And so, you know, um, the nutshell version of that is there's, there's a lot of biases people don't realize they have where they inadvertently start making inappropriate questions or suggestions or, or advice or ideas when they really should be more open-minded and listening and following a fair process. And so my company teaches people, you know, um, tools for, for, for instance, planning a response to challenging behaviors at work. That's fair. So that way you don't see a manager pulling you in and saying, um, gee, I've noticed like you don't, you don't seem good. You know, you don't seem good because of what's going on. Maybe you should go try our employee assistance plan. 
That may sound nice, but it's not the manager's business to start guessing who's having a mental health problem. You know, it's, it's better to have um, a behavior-based criteria for responding. So I don't know if that's, that's making a lot of sense. But it, it does based on, you know, what I gather from, you know, your work and also the book, which I'm going to get into on in a few moments, but it does make some sense because, it, you know, you mentioned how there's no one size fits all definition of, mm-hmm. you know, mental health or, um, and, and, and although we have, you know, DSM five, you know, diagnostic manual uh, criteria for such, um, you know, for certain disorders and, um, certain aspects of uh, mental health experience, they may not really encapsulate what every person's experience is, right? Their lived experience. Um, I guess I, I would like to want to go, because it looks like you're trying to get at, with, you, know, with, you know, you haven't used the word yet, but it seems like there's a lot of stereotypes around how people present who have mental health, right? Um, yes. Is it, you know, and I'm not sure if it's movie, if it's media, if it's popular conceptually, if it's just what people just envision in their own minds, what that means to them. But, um, you know, because it is, I mean, what do you think, you know, has led to perhaps only one type of, or only a one size fits all definition of mental health for certain people? Um. So, yeah. So, I mean, in the book, I talk about how different people have different experiences with the same condition. Um, and also, like you're saying, you know, in our society, there is um, a lot of, you know, a, a lot of sources of information that give people these ideas that they have in their head of they know what it means for someone to have a mental health problem. But really, um, you know, we don't know what exactly the experience is for any one person. My experience of bipolar disorder is different from other people's experience of bipolar disorder. You really need to listen to the person, you know, but your your question is why do people form these one size fits all definitions? And um, I think people like to feel like there is a a solution to a problem in their head. So mental health often comes up like a puzzle. You know, a mental health problem is a problem with someone's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And, you know, you want to feel like you understand what's going on. So I think the human, the human nature, it, it says, well, um, you know, I'd like to feel like I understand this. So, oh, oh, I get it. It's a mental health problem. Or I get it. I know what that is. I know that label. And you like to feel like you have it all figured out, but you're not, it's not appropriate when you're in a workplace or in your own family, or if you're a mediator, it's not appropriate for you to think you figured someone else out. And we know that, you know, we know that with a lot of other identities that you don't want to assume, you know, who someone is just based on their race or based on their sexual orientation. But what happens with mental health in particular, in my experience, what I've observed is people think, well, someone with a mental health problem might need help. They might need my help because, because they might not be able to speak for themselves because they're, they're kind of, um, you know, just confused and incapable. And that's one stereotype, or they may be dangerous and I might need to protect myself from them. Um, And so because of these things that they might be incapable or they might be dangerous, I'm going to think it's my responsibility to make a guess of what's going on with this person with the mental health problem versus someone of a certain race or other kind of uh, other kind of identity. And, And I'm going to think it's my job. I better, I better know what's going on and have a resource to hand them. And, 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 and it's, it comes from a place of good intentions often, 
but then that person ends up making offensive, inappropriate guesses. And they really put insert themselves into something that's not their business. Um, and in fact, the Americans with Disabilities Act protects people living with mental health problems from being treated differently based on having uh, a mental health problem or even based on someone guessing that they have a mental health problem. So it's pretty dangerous for someone to, to meet me, here I have bipolar disorder, and then start making guesses about what I need or treating me differently because that could, you know, that is often discrimination. And, um, you know, that's that's where, you know, I've gotten to professionally is, is trying to raise awareness of, you know, we don't want to accidentally discriminate against people with mental illness based on our assumptions and based on our paternalism um, and based on some stigmas. We don't, we don't want to do that. We want to have tools to make sure how we um, handle difficult situations, we, we do it in a fair and partial way that's not based on us making guesses about someone having a mental health problem. And so that's, that's what the book focuses on is, is, you know, explaining mental health and mental illness and how it might come up in a dispute, but then looking at some of these challenges of, um, you know, all of these sources of stereotypes, like you mentioned, and why they happen and what these myths are, and finally providing some solutions of how do you talk about mental health in an empowering way? How do you handle challenging behaviors in a fair and consistent way? And how do you act in an accessible manner? Meaning if somebody does need your help, how do you offer that help without singling someone out based on your own guesses? Um, so it's all about having a universal approach where you're always offering people help and you're not just seeing the people you think may have a mental health problem and offering them resources. Okay. Um... I can see how that would be very impactful and useful um, because it is true. There's a lot of marginalized communities who are often, um, you know, again, whether, whether it be good intention or bad intention, right? People believe that they know best. And that's right. some of that self-determination that we talk about because even people who we think, who we believe may not be able to have exercise discretion or, or will they, they can't and we should empower them to do so. Is that what you're kind of getting at? Yeah, well, so, so what I'm saying is we should be offering everyone resources. We should be offering everyone help, and we should be doing that equally. So if someone walks into our office, it shouldn't matter if we guess they may or may not have a mental health problem. We, sh you know, we should always have the same options available um, you know, based on just their behaviors without guessing about um, if they have a mental illness. And so the recommendation would be ask everyone, is there anything you need that I could help you with? Um, instead of waiting until you see someone who you think might be depressed and then saying, oh, do you need my help? Because I noticed you seem depressed. So it's, it's a lot of things like that, where as a normal way of behaving, we want to be consistent. We don't want to wait and, and change things based on wondering if someone may have a backstory where they have a mental illness and, and, and they, they have other kinds of problems. And so we're going to single them out for different treatment. I see. So, right. Your, your book and, and what you talk about with mental health and conflict resolution, is not really meant to be a diagnostic tool. It's meant to be best practices in how we deal in this space. And how yes. Okay. So the book, the book provides an orientation to how mental health, um, is defined in different communities and how mental illness is defined in different communities with an idea that we're not giving you even a consistent definition of what it means to have a mental illness or a mental health problem or, 
you know, what mental health is, because the whole point is this is a tool for, for listening to people and treating them fairly. So different, different people have different ideas about what it means for someone to have a diagnostic label. Um, so this, this, this book doesn't teach the diagnoses at all. It teaches the broader um, knowledge base of all the different options, the different kinds of treatment professionals you can go to, the different kinds of diagnostics you can get. Um, so, so, so that way the reader understands there's no one answer. Um, you know, there's no simple answer. It's about people making choices. Um, in other words, you know, I choose to go to a clinician and get diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I choose to endorse that diagnosis and identify with it. But someone else may choose that they don't believe the diagnostic um, of, of bipolar disorder applies to them. And they may choose not to seek treatment. They may choose um, to disagree with the diagnosis. They may go to different doctors who have different diagnoses. So, um, you know, it's a choice. It's not a, it's, it's not like someone's checking your, your blood and diagnosing you with bipolar disorder. I'm glad you mentioned that actually. I'm very, um, because that is something that is, I guess, something of a misnomer and I'm glad we were able to bring it out here. You're essentially saying that, you know, because I think a lot of people feel like mental people who have any type of mental health problem or maybe suspected of having one or, uh, they are in, people consider them to be in denial. Well, you just don't know that you, you know, no one likes to say that they have any mental health problem because it's a stigma, et cetera, et cetera. But you're really saying that despite the fact that we do have, you know, some, I guess, medical criteria for such, when people choose not to endorse it, that's their lived experience as well. And there's ways we can offer them resources in whichever space, they choose to operate, right? However, they choose to cope with that. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I mean, I, I would say, you know, in a more complicated way, you know, two different doctors can have different ideas of a diagnosis. So, so someone may go and um, they may be diagnosed by one professional as having bipolar disorder. And then they may go to another professional who says, you know what, I actually think you have borderline personality disorder. And they might go to a third professional says, I think you have both. They may have a third, a fourth professional says, I think you were going through a situational trauma and I don't think it's any of those. And then they have different treatment recommendations. Someone else, someone might, might say, take lithium. That's the classic drug for bipolar. Someone else may say, I don't believe in lithium. It's got harsh side effects. I think you should take um, Lamictal or, you know, there, there's so many possibilities of what could be going on and how it can be interpreted. And because it's not the same kind of an illness, there's a lot of subjectivity in the diagnosis, there, you know, there really is uh, a lot of unknowns in how these diagnoses even come about and how people agree to them. So it's important in general to understand that the diagnoses themselves, and you can read about this in the book, um, they're not necessarily gospel. And then you have the fact that even if they were gospel, even if there was a simple diagnosis that's the, the definitive truth, it may not be that person's truth of how they want to live in response to the diagnosis. And so their choices should be respected. So in the, in the book, in the beginning part of it, where I introduce all this information, um, I, I go through a lot of the choices that someone might make. Uh, choices like whether or not they want to seek treatment at all, whether they agree with the doctor, whether they want to go to another doctor. I also include the personal story of how my, my parents are divorced and they each um, found me a different doctor with a very different recommendation. And so I had a choice right away of um, you know how I was going to live my life with this condition, and I chose one doctor over the other, and it was you know a very different 
a very different life story for me because of it. Um, so the, the whole the whole spirit of the book is to say, look, it's not this very clear cut situation. People have choices to make about you know what they're doing related to their mental health. And as as mediators and dispute resolvers, we're all about um, looking at choices instead of answers. We're all about saying, let's have people discuss what's going on and let's respect their choices. So that's you know that, that's why it's especially relevant for mediators um, and. You know, I'll just to tie it home to the other point. Um, you know, uh, a lot of times mediators have biases that make them not realize there's choices in mental health. So that's why it's so important um, to read this beginning part of the book that explains. You know, it's not as simple as just oh, um, someone has this condition, so you have to treat them differently. It's very important that we all be aware that there are so many choices in mental health and so many options. Um, and, and, that, and that people need those choices respected and they need mediators to highlight those choices and honor them instead of dismissing them. And then I, I noticed, which I think is um, extremely interesting and in some ways a little bit revolutionary because people have a tendency once again to, you know, I guess discount or at least not believe that a person who, you know, may have any type of mental health abnormality is you know incapable of making their own decisions right and um you know their own choices um because you know i think the stigma kind of and the stereotype probably reinforces that for a lot of people um you know springing it into the conflict resolution scenario um a little bit more i noticed that you spent you mentioned something about how you you don't want to even if you're in a, in a dispute, for example, right? And someone has shared with you that they may have a particular diagnosis or they consider themselves to be this or that in terms of a, um, some type of mental health um, you know, challenge. Um, you don't, you still abide by the guidepost, the best practices. You're not do, doing things based on that person's individual um, challenge or disorder is that so Eric? the rule under the americans with disabilities act mm -hmm. is it, you really shouldn't do anything differently at all what when you hear someone has a mental health problem unless that person's asking you to do something differently and if they are that's called a request for a reasonable accommodation so if i say to you um listen i have bipolar disorder um and i i'm nervous that the situation that the um the conflict could trigger me and, and trigger my symptoms. So I'd like to have an ability to take breaks more frequently than normal. That's me asking for a reasonable accommodation. That's very different than if I say, hey, I'm Dan, I have bipolar disorder. And you say, oh, well, I've heard that people with bipolar disorder can't sit still through a session. So why don't I offer you extra breaks? Then that is you know, inappropriate for you to offer it. It's, 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 it's a, because I didn't ask, right? But if I ask, then you have an obligation um, to offer it. So it's very interesting in that way, where if I'm the one asking you with my mental illness for help, you have a responsibility. But set, uh, separate from that, you also have a responsibility not to suggest that you think I need help based on knowing my mental illness, because then you're discriminating against me and you're assuming I have deficits just based on my illness. And so the way around that is to, is to always, whenever you see any client, say, um, by the way, if, if you need any adjustments, just let me know. And, um, 
and we can make an adjustment to the session to meet your needs. I'm a mediator. I, I honor self-determination. So I want this process to work for you. Let me know if you need any adjustments. And then someone can ask you for those adjustments without you suggesting it based on their illness. Okay. Um, what if someone, or people often believe people are, for, for, for better or worse, unable to ask or really aren't able to, to know what adjustments they might need or what accommodations they might need? Is there any way to, you know, suggest without being, um, you know, presumptuous or offensive? Yes. So the, the way to suggest is to suggest it to everyone and make it clear you're suggesting it to everyone. There's no problem suggesting uh, uh, adjustment options as long as it's not being done based on your stereotypes. So you could have a, a normal intake and say, you know, we, we like to offer adjustments in case somebody needs it. Um, if anyone needs it, that's what we do. And here's, here's the adjustments that are available and let me know which ones you want. Um, if you want any, you don't have to do them, but this is what we do for everyone. That's very different than, than um, you know, having someone sit down across from you and you say, oh, you seem to have depression. Let me offer you, let me offer you something I don't normally offer other people. That's where it becomes, um, you know, paternalistic um, if, if you're doing it as a response to someone um, seeming in your mind to have a mental health problem without them having asked. And if you're singling that person out for something different. So the, the answer, and I, I talk about this in the book, is something called universal design, where you offer everyone options all the time. Because at the end of the day, you never know who's going to have a mental health problem. Uh, one, one in five people each year have one normally, and there's been an uptick with the pandemic um, and some of the statistics of the symptoms that people are having. And you know, even people who don't have a diagnosable disorder still might have some kind of need. So you shouldn't be relying on your guess based on um, what's going on. And you shouldn't be relying on them disclosing because like you said, there's a lot of stigma. So a lot of people won't disclose. So the best practice is to just offer, offer these options to everybody. Um, and, and do so knowing that some people may have mental health problems, but it's not your business to know who does. Okay. Um, through your work as a, as a mediator, um, uh, presumably, I, I know a lot of each state is a little different in terms of the mediator trainings they offer. Um, but uh, I can tell you that um, a lot of it, you know, focuses on, you know, at least making the, showing the parties what the process is like you know, and, and discussing that, you know, we're, we're here to have a conversation and, and that it's, you know, not a one right answer. We're trying to find areas of agreement and people's interests and values. What are some of the ways, some of the, I should say, other offers or other tools that, that could exist in a, let's say, a mediator's opening statement that might be illustrative of the kinds of universal design you're speaking about in your book? Um, so I actually include a sample opening statement in the book that uh, shows some of the things that you might say. But one, one example of a principle of universal design is to understand that people might make mistakes. And so you want to have what's called tolerance for error. So people know that there's not a high consequence for making mistakes. So I might include in my opening statement a note that says, you know, I know this is a, a serious conversation everyone's having for a matter we all care about. Um, sometimes people might feel like they misspeak. We don't want anyone to feel nervous about, um, you know, be, being held to the words they're saying if they want to change what they're saying along the way. So 
you know, one guideline is if, if you feel like you made a mistake at any point, um, that's okay. You can just let us know and we can go back, go back and take words back or, um, you know, what have you. So that's one of the principles of universal design is called tolerance for error. And I've incorporated that mistake language into my opening statement to try to make it so it's less intense. Another thing I incorporated into my opening statement, um, one of the principles is called low effort. You don't want anyone to strain through your process. And I always give the example of, you know, when we're in a mediation and one party looks like they're going to have smoke coming out of their ears, red in the face, like so upset, or they're writing furiously. And I call those high effort situations. So a guideline that I would include in the opening statement is saying, you know, my job as a mediator is to make this process as comfortable as possible for everyone. Um, so if, if anyone's ever feeling uncomfortable, um, please let me know. And we'll try to make an adjustment throughout the session, you know, to, if, any, if anyone's uncomfortable for any reason. And um, typically that actually by itself makes people more relaxed because they know they have the option. Um, but, you know, those are examples of some general statements that can go in an opening statement that can set a tone that lets people feel free to ask when they're uncomfortable um, or correct a mistake um, as a couple of examples. And there's, there's seven principles of universal design that I go through in the book. Um, and, and there's more elements that are in that sample opening statement. Okay. And in terms of one of the things that, you know, I'm thinking when you mentioned the pandemic that people have had to adjust their mode in method of communication a lot. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm sure that it appears to have had an effect even on people who may have never identified or been diagnosed with any type of mental health challenge. Um, so I guess uh, my question is, are there any times when, you know, the mode and method of communication can be, you know, in, in and of itself an accommodation where I'm sorry, you know, Zoom doesn't work for me, um, in-person is better, or maybe if we could be in different rooms, is there, is there anything of that nature? Yes. So a hundred percent. And I, I actually, over the course of the pandemic personally started um, asking for different types of communication uh, as an accommodation for my mental illness. So I can, I can definitely verify that that's something that is done. Basically the rule with an accommodation is you want to be open, making any kind of adjustment. And the only reason you wouldn't do so, um, and you'd have to check with an attorney before you would say no, is if you, you know, either feel you're not obligated because um, the person doesn't qualify as having a disability, which again, I would check with an attorney before making that determination. Um, and if it's too costly or too much of a hardship or would fundamentally alter your services, then th those are the reasons that you might deny an accommodation request. But when you're, we're talking about changing the communication method, and let's say um, having written communication instead of a Zoom or written communication um, instead of a phone call or, or different versions, those things are usually um, free to change. So when somebody is asking to make those kinds of changes, I think it's important that in general, we accommodate them um, regardless of whether they have a disability. And my, my recommendation is as mediators, since we are focused on self-determination of the parties, that we work with whatever any party wants to do in terms of not just the um, you know, type of communication, but also the length of the session, the timing of the session, these are all ways that it's important, um, if possible, for us to be flexible and work with someone's needs. And you don't know if if someone is wants a shorter session because they have um, a cognitive disability or not. They don't have to tell you. And the ideal world, they wouldn't have to tell you in order to get you to give them that shorter session. Um, you don't need to know that someone takes a sedating medication that they need 
to um, have an evening session for that reason. If you just offer evening sessions, they can ask for that session without having to tell you about their disability. And that, that's why it's really helpful if we can all be in the habit of offering options without requiring disability disclosure. Um, because a lot of people don't want to disclose their disability um, because of the stigma. And they shouldn't have to, really. We should be moving to a world that is accessible inherently, where people don't need to ask for special treatment because they can get what they need without needing to tell you, that, oh, please help me, I have a disability. Um, that's sort of a last resort option that people don't want to have to do because people would rather feel like the world is set up for them to access it without them needing to raise their hand and say, can you make a change because of my disability? So, so that's the, 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 the ideal is to be open with lots of different options, like you mentioned with the communication, um, but really with every aspect of our practice, if we can be more flexible, um, then people won't need to ask as much to have us make changes. I see. So again, we're focusing on providing resources and options and flexibility. Yes. It really helps everyone. You know, it's really not just for people, as you have said, uh, for people who may identify or have a mental health disability or disorder or identify with any challenges. It's just really something that just should be a universal framework that makes everything, the whole process more accessible and more, um, I guess, less traumatic and more impactful and empowering. That's a hundred percent right. And so basically what you have in this book is um, we, we, we end with the message of here's the way to handle challenging behaviors in a consistent manner. And here's the way to be accessible in a consistent manner where you're not singling anyone out based on having a mental health problem. And so in that sense, it, these tools are useful for all kinds of parties, not just people with mental health problems. What's special is a lot of mediators think that you should behave differently when there's a party with a mental health problem. So what's special, uh, that's the only reason we even need to talk about it is because we're getting rid of those biases. And the beginning part of this book is all about understanding that we need to de-bias and not assume we know what's going on and that someone needs our help when there's a mental health problem and instead focus on having these empowering practices for anyone. So, uh, so you, what you said is exactly right. By, by changing our practices, excuse me, by changing our practices in this manner, we're helping all parties have a more empowering experience, not just the people who may have mental health problems. Okay, wonderful. And, you know, one would think that this would be, you know, this kind of action or this paradigm shift is long overdue, um, you know, but again, I guess, you know, often change is rather incremental. However, it doesn't, it, it's always good to have people who live, have this lived experience who can provide firsthand knowledge and testimony, if you will, about the best ways in, in which to deal with a lot of these things. Um, and I think I, 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 as you have a lot of takeaways here, one takeaway I get is that because there's no one size that fits all, so to speak, we need a universal size that fits all in a sense, right? A universal design that provides a menu of options for people to, to select regardless of their experiences, because that's just part of the human experience, right? Is being as uh, humane as possible. Yes. So the okay. idea is 
everyone's going to get their own custom process, which is appropriate with self-determination. Um, universal design means that we, we don't know who's going to come through our door, but we know that different kinds of people will come through our door. It's not our business to know which person has a mental health problem and which person doesn't, unless they tell us and they want to tell us, but they have privacy rights. They don't have to tell us. So we should be designing that universal process that has flexibility and customizability so people can get what they need without having to um, be outed if, you know, in, order, in order to do so. And so that's this idea of universal design um, and, and you, you have it exactly right. So um, you know, we, we wanna assume that everyone's an individual and we wanna be protecting every individual's rights, their right to privacy, their right to access help if they do have a disability and they want to ask for it, their right to not be discriminated against and treated differently based on um, the mediator or anyone's ideas of you know, whether they have an illness and what that illness means. Um, so we wanna incorporate all that into this process. And so the book really walks you through understanding why we're doing it. And then here's how you do that. Here's how you create these consistent practices, which like you say, are, are, are really long overdue. And um, you know, it's, it's been interesting for me because you know, when I trained as a mediator, I was told that they would screen out cases with mental illness. And I was scared to tell people that I had been hospitalized. And it's been a, a little bit of a journey for me to be more open about my, my limitations because I was afraid that people would judge me as less reliable as a mediator or possibly dangerous because they have ideas about the bipolar disorder. And um, you know, we, there's a lot of work for us to do to, to address these biases about mental health and to improve our practices so that way for everybody, they are more consistent and fair. And it looks like you've been doing a lot of the work towards that. Um, I think this, you know, again, a wonderful text, a lot of great information, a great discussion. Um, and, you know, and hopefully um, these, these types of changes, you know, at least will be considered and implemented a little bit more often when we have, and perhaps become the norm, become something that we, we teach when it comes to conflict resolution. Um, we could go on and on, but you know, of course we have time constraints, but thank you so much for your time. And I, I do appreciate um, this uh, great work that you're doing. And I look to uh, see more in the future. Thank you very much for having me.